Thank you to Contentful for supporting our podcast. I'm Marcelo Lewin, and this is the Contentful Creators Podcast, Season 1, Episode 9. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 9 of the Contentful Creators Podcast, where I have conversations with content architects, designers, developers, and other creators who use the Contentful content platform and related technologies to create web experiences. I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin, a content creator, developer, project manager, and a certified Contentful professional. Today, I'll be chatting all about how to build scalable Contentful applications using three specific architectures with my guest, Diego Aguilar, a software engineer focused on cloud development, AWS, and Jamstack. But before we get started, if you want more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, and blog articles, all focused on creating web experiences using Contentful and related technologies, please visit www.contentfulcreators.com. All right, Diego, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Marcelo. Thanks. I've been building web applications and services for those during the last years. My experience with cloud development actually started alongside the times when Node was getting popular, and then it actually became an industry-accepted technology. I've worked on different industries, including mobile and web games, health, TV apps, during the last years, also media streaming services. So when you say media streaming services, like uh, what kind of things are you working on? Application hosting music and providing authorization for music services. Music services like Spotify or those kinds of services? Particularly in your archives, some applications related to private vendor providers. You're located in Mexico, right? What city are you in? Yeah, this is Guadalajara. It's a city in the Western Mexico. It's actually a kind of technology place. There are many, many software agencies here and also some big ones, Oracle, even IBM. Oh, wow. So it's like a technology hub in Mexico? Yeah, it's actually a non-technology hub. Well, it's also a very beautiful city and worth for visiting as a tourist. I see. Now, you also work on Contentful applications, right? Yeah, I've been working with Contentful for two years. Actually, one big application was this kind of streaming service. It was New Archives. It scaled pretty well. It was hosting the whole collection of this singer and receiving many, many visitors. It had a, a great success when we released, and it's all Contentful based. So what was the technology stack? It was obviously Contentful on the back end. What was your other technology stack? It was a Heroku hosted Node application. It was connected with multiple third parties like Auxero, Stripe, and other third party services for tracking and marketing tracking. It was a React application in the front. I see. Very cool. So obviously, you mentioned that you worked on large applications, and the key to large applications is they need to scale. Yeah, exactly. And the way to make an application scale is to build the application using some sort of architecture. So that way it can scale properly. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, right? Three specific architectures that you've used in the past to help your application scale better. More specifically, Contentful related applications. But I'm assuming these architectures that we're about to talk about can also be used in non-Contentful apps, correct? Correct. So why don't we start with sort of the basics, just so we can set a baseline for everybody listening And let's start with basically what is an architecture? Can you define that for us? Sure. An architecture is both the blueprint of a system, the overall roadmap for developing that system. In other words, it's how we will structure the decisions that we will take to build a system or an application. 
And usually who's involved in making those decisions and coming up with that architecture? That's a great question. Well, it begins with product needs. So some product people, even client side, start with those with that vision. Then there are specific people taking care of this. They are actually, well, architects or technology people, developers may or might be involved too. I see. So really there is a variety of people. Now, like you mentioned, you usually will have some sort of technical architect involved as well, right? To make sure that they follow standard procedures and that people keep an eye sort of on the big picture. Exactly. I mean, either the role is software architect or technical solutions. There are people focused on that, specialized on that. Got it. Got it. Yep, definitely. Now, of course, there's the architecture that we're talking about today, which is the architecture of the technical side, but there's also architectures for content. And that's where you need a sort of a content architect too, especially with contentful applications. You need either a person that can do both or a person for each site, right? So both sites can scale properly. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. So we've defined what an architecture is, but why? Why do we even need one? What's the positives of it? And also touch upon some of the challenges of having to build an application using some sort of architecture? Sure. So architectures are important because when we are planning and designing a system, we may want to do the right thing without much hustle and taking simple and clear decisions and steps. Also, we should consider the level of technical debt that we can afford. We should consider what components in this application are involved, what our roadmap are, what resources we have. There are definitely multiple traits to consider in order to have a decision on what architecture we, we should follow. One big challenge is going for simplicity. Don't go into complex on this. So architectures could complicate things or make things more complicated. So in other words, if I'm understanding you correctly, you've got to really first figure out, does this project even need a full architecture or is this such a simple project that bringing an architecture would be overkill? Not really. There's always an architecture. We just need to make sure we take the right one and add in the level of complexity that we need according to our needs. I see. That makes a lot of sense. Now, are there some standards that we should follow for architecture development? For example, a 12-factor app, maybe you can expand on different standards and what each of those are. Sure. 12 factors app, it's a very known methodology. It's actually written from the perspective of Kerouac engineers. It's listing 12 practices to build industry standard following some patterns. And it defines the way it, it became really, really popular and accepted. So is the 12-factor app the most popular one or are there other architectures out there that people can follow? Definitely there are others. I can think of, for example, from Laravel, there's this very simple statement on convention over configuration, which basically says, do simple things which might be accepted. It might work in different environments, not going too complex. Got it. That makes sense. So can you explain some of the attributes of an architecture? Sure. Those can be cited in 12 apps, declarative formats, green contracts, maximum portability, and continuous deployment. So what do those mean? We should have a defined way how to build things. We should have a very clear and simple way on how our system components will interact. We should implement those anytime with business and we should be ready to add more stuff or fix bugs anytime and quickly. I see. And those attributes are what makes an application more scalable, right? Exactly. 
That makes sense. When it comes to implementing a complex or perfect architecture, there's something called worse is better. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Well, it comes from this famous article from Richard Gabriel, The Rise of Worse is Better. In a few words, explaining simple, there's always a way to do the right thing, not going too complex. And there should always be a trade-off and we should be ready to accept that. Now, why is that? Does it mean basically don't wait till it's perfect because it'll never be perfect? Is that basically what it means? Or can you expand a little more? Sure. It actually means that. It's also because we would spend more time trying to make it perfect than actually defining and implementing what we need to do. I see. That makes sense. And that's where iterations come in, right? Because you can implement, release, and then go back and, and improve and release again. Yes, it's a known pattern and kind of phenomenon from software development and product development in general. Right. Agile, being agile. Yep. So let's dig a little deeper into architectures. And what's the difference between architectures that are serverless versus cloud-based? Sure. So when we deploy applications living somewhere, it should exist in a place. There's this kind of myth from cloud. It's a computer after all, anytime. A cloud could be as simple as a server running somewhere. Then we find out, I mean, a long time, architects find out that Doing monolithic applications or doing too much in a go with complex things, then serverless came up. So as separation of concerns, serverless is a pattern on having multiple components of a system doing smaller things and interacting between themselves. So would an example of that be Lambda functions in, let's say, AWS? Would that be an example of a serverless application? Definitely. I mean, that became a canonical example of serverless. For sure, there are more. That's an example for web-based applications, but we also have monitoring, we have batch processing, we have multiple, multiple kind of tasks in software development, which might go serverless. I see. And when we talk about serverless, we literally mean you're not worried about a server, you're just hosting the code. Somebody else is taking care of all that behind the scenes. Exactly. You think on your needs, you write some code, and then you define configs and deploy. And that's it. Right, right. That makes sense. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into the three types of architectures you recommend for creating scalable, contentful applications. But before we do that, let's define some keywords because all of these architectures that we're about to talk use these keywords. So let's start with cache. What is meant by a cache? Sure. So cache is a collection of data which is preloaded and probably even preprocessed to be used anytime. So we can keep it safe and ready to be used. And usually that is sort of a copy of data from somewhere else, correct? Exactly. It could be a set of content entries from a contentful space, for example, or it could be a set of users from a database, for example. Right. What about an event? What is exactly meant by an event? So an event, it's something which happens in a system and we already categorized that thing happening and we defined the secondary effects. So in other words, when an event happens, we'll have a code react to it and do something. Another way to say that is the system might have something happening and we should have code to react to that. Got it. That makes sense. And finally, before we jump into the actual architectures, what is a batch? When we mention batches, what are we talking about? Sure. A batch is a potentially bigger amount of 
data or tasks which we need to process and execute at some point. And usually they are scheduled or they happen in a defined time lapse. I see. So if you make updates, let's say, to a bunch of people objects, you may batch all those updates before they're actually copied to a cache. Exactly. Okay, so let's jump into those three types of architectures. And we've kind of hinted people because we've defined some of those keywords, but let's name each of them. What are the three types of architectures you are recommending today? Sure. So those are cache-based. Also, we have event-driven architecture, batch sync processing architecture. So why don't we start with the cache architecture? Explain what is that? What does that consist of? Sure. So it consists on a component in a system which is taking care of fetching a set of data or content. In this case, we can relate to contentfuls entries. It keeps those entries safe and ready to be used by a system or even other components or different systems. I see. And actually, we've used this in where I work, where we have contentful. We allow the authors to enter all the content in contentful, but then we use webhooks to copy that content into a cache repository of that content in our production app actually hits that cache repository. And the main reason we decided to do that is because we wanted to make sure that if Contentful ever goes down, that our app would still be up because it's hitting the cache versus directly Contentful. Would that be an example of a cache architecture? Yeah, that's actually a very good example. There's this fallacy of the network is reliable. We also have latency, which is always an issue at some point. So that's where cache comes in. And well, also we have sometimes like API red limitings or CDM concerns. That's somewhere cache might work pretty well. That's an excellent point because I did say if Contentful does go down, but also there may be other issues, not just Contentful or any other app. It could be the internet connection between Contentful and your location that may have gone down and uh, now your app is down. So I think having sort of a cache architecture does help in mitigating some points of failure. Right. So when is it not a good idea to use a sort of cache architecture? Well, one is when our set of content might be maybe too big. Probably we should do cache, but with other considerations, or even when it's just too small and doesn't make sense to go that way or we don't actually need to worry that much about availability so maybe doing cash is actually more expensive than going simple and it's more expensive for a couple of reasons right one is there's more code that you have to write because now you have to write code that synchronizes and keeps things in sync constantly correct correct yeah yeah and the other point is the duplicating of content and having issues with the synchronization itself, right? So you have to have some sort of mechanism that tells you that the sync didn't work. And then your cache may be completely out of sync or partially out of sync from your real data. Yeah, that's right. Then we need to do some kind of fingerprint or flagging on updates. And that's where things might go complex. And that will be a sign that this architecture may or might not be the 
right way to do that. Exactly. Yeah, we've done that fingerprinting or flagging, as you called it, in ours, where we have a sync date and time field on both environments. And we know it's just by looking at that field in both environments, if they're not equal, then they're not in sync and we have to somehow resync them. Right. Perfect. So what is the technology stack for the cache architecture? That's a good question. So we need to have somewhere to run our code according to the programming language that we use. Could be either a server instance, which will be cloud, or a platform as a service, which would be the serverless option. And also, and very important, we should define where the cache would reside. Right. And that's really important, right? And also how you're going to store the cache, whether it's going to be some sort of Git repository, a database, right? You need to define those parameters. And also how often, I would imagine, you're going to update that cache. Exactly. You need to think how often you update that. You need to think where it's residing. You need to think in what format you would store that. And even if there would be any kind of transformation to be stored. Right, right, definitely. Yeah, and that's why sometimes cache architectures are not good, especially, for example, if you have a site like YouTube where you're constantly updating content, a cache architecture may be bogged down very easily. Yeah, it would get exhausted pretty soon. Right, exactly. Moving on to the next architecture, you recommend event-driven architecture. Can you explain what that is? It's a defined way to have system components or just simple code scripts reacting to categorize events from an external source. In this case, would be contentful events or entries or content types, and we would be aware of those by webhooks. Usually, those events would trigger other events, and then we have two options. One going cloud-based is having our whole program doing something after that, or having smaller components catching the event and deciding what to do and probably triggering other components to react. So what's a good example of an event-driven architecture? When would you use that? Sure. One example, and actually a real example that I can think on, is if we have this blog and it includes a marketing tracking ID, which might change anytime. So when an error would change that field, we could handle that in a Lambda function, and that would update either Adobe or Google Analytics system. That makes a lot of sense, but now I'm thinking we can mix, and it sounds like we can mix architectures, because in my architecture where I said we're doing the cache architecture, but we are using webhooks that trigger the synchronization into cache. Whenever anybody updates any entries, it'll update the cache, but that's done via webhooks. So does that mean that my architecture that I have is sort of a mixture between cache and event-driven? Sure. I mean, just like in life, not all solutions are absolute. So yes, you're right. I see. So when is it not a good idea to use event-driven architecture? One example is when we may have too many processing or too many steps to do after events. So doing separation of concerns will actually make things harder. Another example would be when we actually need to care about latency. So by having much events or multiple triggers, we are just zooming up latency and that would impact on our application needs. This brings to mind a question about synchronous versus asynchronous. I'm assuming in an event-driven architecture, you're very asynchronous, correct? You should be. 
Right. So if, and I was just thinking, if you need an operation to be synchronous, in other words, you can't continue on until this is done, an event-driven architecture is probably not the way to go. Exactly. Or you can go to this kind of mix. So it's this trade-off where you can have even driven and probably you can start to batch some stuff which need to happen after or any side effects. Right, which goes back to what your previous point was, like not everything is absolute. Once you understand these architectures, you can almost start taking the best pieces of each. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. So what's the technology stack used to create these event-driven architectures? Sure. So one big option can be message brokers. We have, for example, a RabbitMQ, and that's very cloud-based. And it's also something very obvious, maybe application dealing with huge amount of data would be a use case. And then we have this trending out Lambda or function-based services. We have AWS Lambda, we have cloud functions, we have also Azure solutions for that. Those would be like the base stack for that. Also queuing or any kind of message or push services are very useful here. Right, to send those messages upon events, right? Exactly. Or just getting notified on ACKs, like something happened and it was handled and everything went good. Right, right, exactly. So explain what is Batch Sync, which is our final architecture that you're recommending. Sure. So we can explain Batch Sync with a real life example. We'll have some stuff that we need to do every time in a while. For example, we have to take care of paying our bills by the end of the month, perhaps. So we would accumulate any bills be received in our mailbox, and then by the end of the month, we will take a look at them and start paying that. So that's a good example for batch block. So if we compare, we have this huge block. There are many, many, many changes in entries. So probably each time in a day or each time in a week, our system would go take a look at them and would start processing according field change and any side effects which are already designed in our architecture. So if I'm not misunderstanding, it's almost like event-driven, but you're batching all those changes and then synchronizing them. Exactly, yes. Exactly a kind of a mix of the first two architectures, actually. Right, yeah, makes sense. And in fact, going back to my example of what we've done, we're also not doing an update every single time, right? So we're using a mixture of all three because we have a cache, We have events that trigger the synchronization of that cache, but because we know there's going to be many updates to contend for, we batch those synchronizations. So really, we are using an event-driven cache batch sync architecture. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. No, that makes total sense. So, well, you explain, you know, a good usage of it. When is it not good to use a batch sync architecture? Definitely when the amount of content that needs to be processed is just small. Okay, that makes sense. I was thinking also, because your batch processing, your batch syncing, there would be delay between when the authors updated something, and depending on your syncing, if you say, we're going to sync only once a day, that means that updates would only be shown once a day. So I would imagine that a batch syncing architecture wouldn't be good for a site, like a new site, that needs to be constantly updated and be up to the latest. Yeah, that's right, definitely. Batch is the option unless you need to focus on real time. Right, exactly. If it's real time, then that's not the way to go. Exactly. 
Yeah. So what technology stack do you need for batch sync? Sure. So you need to have somewhere to execute all that processing. In this case, from experience, I would say don't do much of serverless. Just have somewhere to run your code. You definitely should have a good login strategy and login service to know everything what's going on and if it's actually working good. And well, you may want to get notified of that. I see. So a good hosting place, a good login kind of service to know what's going on, and then some sort of notification service. And it sounds like you could use those, honestly, across all of the architectures. Yeah, actually, that's a very good point. You should have a way to know what's going on, what happened, and just get notified right away. Yeah, definitely. Okay, Diego, we're almost at the end here. I really appreciate you sharing all your knowledge. It's cleared up a lot of information for me. So thank you for that. Final question is resources. Do you recommend any specific resources where developers or even non-developers that are more technical people that are working on technical projects want to learn more about these different type of architectures? Sure. I would recommend this book, Fundamentals of Software Architecture by Mark Richards. It's an O'Reilly book. Also, people should check out the 12-factor app manifesto from Heroku. And also, I would recommend The Rise of Wars is Better by Richard Gabriel. And that is the, when we spoke about better is worse. It's a take on that, I would assume. Exactly, that's correct. I see. All right, Diego. Well, listen, man, I really appreciate it. You've done a great service to the community by sharing all the knowledge. I think it's made us all wiser, and I hope that a lot of us will, before we jump into any kind of development project, whether it's contentful or not, that we start thinking more like an architect and understand that we're building something not just for tomorrow, but for the future. Exactly. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If people want to get a hold of you, do you want to give your email or would you like to give your Twitter, whatever you like? Sure. People can reach me anytime by email. They can write to Diego Aguilar at ciudades.dev. Excellent. And we'll put that in the show notes. Perfect. All right, Diego. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And to the rest of you, I'm glad you're here with us. Just a quick reminder to visit www.contentfulcreators.com for more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, and blog articles. So until the next episode, I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin. Cheers, everybody. 